Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy and welcome along to episode 76, part A of the Howie Games. Thanks for your ears, you guys rock. All right, this episode is something new for the podcast, exciting as it was the first Howie Games we've actually recorded in front of a live audience. The show rolled out in front of a couple of hundred people in Sydney. The guest, a great man by the name of Sam Willoughby, who was also joined by his wife, the equally great woman, Elise Willoughby. This is a story of athletic achievement, a tragic injury, iron will, positivity, and best of all for mine, enduring love. Alrighty, no more from me. All you need to know from here is included in the live show. Enjoy the remarkable Sam and Elise Willoughby. So when you search and then you find Know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Hey, how are you all? I'm Howie, obviously Great to see you all here Good to see some kids in the front row uh, welcome along to what is a really, really special night because it's the first night we've actually recorded a Howie Games podcast live, so we're extremely excited about it. Firstly, I'm really grateful for you guys coming along tonight, late night on a school night. I appreciate it, you too, young fella. It's great to see you all here. Uh, we weren't exactly sure this, uh, how this was going to go. It's the inaugural one. Hopefully it's uh, the first and not the last. But personally, from my point of view, if you can walk away tonight and have been entertained... Um, have received some positivity and walk away a little bit motivated about some things in your life, then I will be very, very happy. And your guest, I can't wait for you guys to meet him because he is an absolute star, more of that in the moment. The Howie Games started about three years ago. I sat down with a fellow by the name of Lewis Hamilton, which is a pretty nice name drop early on, isn't it, Chief? My word it is. Sat down with Lewis Hamilton for about half an hour for Channel 10 for their Grand Prix coverage. And unfortunately, due to the constraints of modern free-to-air television, only five minutes got to air. And I was bemoaning it to a mate and I was bitching and whinging and complaining about it. And he said, mate, you should do podcasts with these people that you meet. And I was like, eh, what's a podcast? I had no idea what a podcast was three years ago. So the very first one, we sat down with the great Adam Gilchrist in Sydney here three years ago. And we got it all done, we were ready to go. And the fellow that I put it together with was a bloke by the name of Michael James, good fella. And I said, uh, MJ, we need something to stand out from the crowd with this podcast because there's so many podcasts out there, how are we gonna make the Howie Games stand out? So we decided to call it Australia's number one sports podcast, number one. So after the first week, how many downloads do you reckon we had? How many? A million. A million? Anyone else? 200? Three. So she was a slow start, but we declared it, that it was Australia's number one sports podcast. So now, thankfully it is, but the moral of the story is, kids, if you're going to tell a lie, tell a really, really big lie and you might get away with it. So that's how it came to pass. You guys, tonight, I know we're in a theatre and I was thinking about this when I came in. If you want to be involved tonight, it's not, you're not watching the ballet, you don't need to be quiet. Oh, I've had the pleasure of travelling a lot. And when you go to the movies in South America and Bolivia and Peru, when the hero comes out, they yell and they scream and they cheer. When the bad guy comes out, they literally get up and boo and throw stuff. Maybe don't throw stuff at us because there's no bad guys tonight, but don't feel like you need to be closed in and, and it's a really quiet audience. If something touches you, if you want to applaud something, if you want to get up out of your seat, you can do whatever you want. We'd love you to be involved in the podcast. If there's one thing I've learned from the podcast, and it's probably for the young guys here mainly, 
sitting down with 75 different people now, the people that I've had the pleasure of meeting, they're not the best necessarily at what they do. They're not the most skilled. They're not the most talented. They don't have the best coaches. They don't have the best opportunities. But the one attribute, the one attribute all these athletes share is they've all got a tremendous work ethic. And I've really learned from that myself that it seems to me that those that work the hardest achieve the most. And tonight's guest, as I said, when you meet Sammy, he's an absolute ripper. He's out the back ready to go. Just having, uh, I don't know if he's having a beer, but he's ready to go. He is the definition of hard work. This is a young man that left home as a very young man to go and pursue his dream, which we absolutely love on the Howie Games. He's a dual world champion. He is an Olympic silver medalist. However, since Sam last raced three years ago, what he's achieved in the last three years for me is absolutely way, way, way more on the scale of achievement. Now, I want you to get up. I want you to stand up and give a warm Sydney welcome to big man. Here he comes, slamming Sam Willoughby, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Yep, that's it. That's what I said. I want you to be involved. Just quietly, have a look at the pipes on the big man. I'm glad I wore a long sleeve shirt. Mate, you're looking sharp. You're looking really sharp. How you going, big man? Good, Howie. Thanks for having me. How are you feeling about this? The first time we've done a live podcast. We had a bit of a rehearsal today, and you and I are a little bit toey earlier on, but I think we're okay, aren't we? I think we've come good. We're okay. Yeah. How many days a week are we going in the gym at the moment to get arms <laughs> like that? Uh, I get in there a few days a week, yeah. Probably four on average. Is that something that you just love? You love to get in there and... Do I, what you do? Yeah, I do. I mean, that was what I loved about sport was the preparation. And um, I just love pushing myself. I love challenging myself. And um, for me, that was a big breakthrough when I started getting back into the gym. And um, I mean, when I had my injury, the you know, going from chasing a gold medal to learning to brush your teeth again, uh, worlds apart. And so to get back to reality of, for me, of, you know, being a meathead and throwing weights around and... Um, doing the things that I like was, was big, yeah. I was in the gym this morning in Sydney. Don't snigger at that either, by the way. <laughs> I was in the gym in Sydney this morning. What are, what are we benching at the moment? <laughs> what, what, are we, what, are, what are you pushing? Well, I, I, it's not as flattering as you might think. Mm. I just got back to 105 kilo. Get stuff, Sammy. <laughs> kilos. Okay, so there's 20 on the bar, so it's 85. So you got... Two twenty plates and a two and a half plate on there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No wonder you got guns but like that on there. I'm a little wobbly on there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, how is life, mate? How's life? You look unbelievable. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's great. Enjoying every minute of it. Um, uh, obviously, got married to my wife Elise uh, a couple of years ago. Yes. And, uh, yes. <laughs> Very lucky lady that she is. And um, yeah, I've sort of ventured into the coaching realm a little bit with Elise and a couple of others and. So I'm just, yeah, still as competitive as ever and travelling around with her and um, chasing world titles still, yeah. Where did it start for you? Tell us a little bit about your, your family life, your mum and dad and your family situation. Yeah, so I grew up in suburban Adelaide um, in Trot Park and just was mad on footy as a kid, um, you know, Auskick and through primary school years and uh, my brother and I always rode bikes in the backyard and around the streets and that was our form of transportation as kids and... Um, Adelaide was just littered with bike jumps and mm. um, there's not as many now but it used to just be you could ride from our house as far as Seaford Rise and you know you'd stop at five six different bike tracks along the way and um, so that's what we did in the school holidays and that's what life was and um, 
Yeah, and then Matt on footy all the way through primary school. and Big right Adelaide up. Crows, man. Yes, yep. Have you drink of water there? But uh. before we get to... <laughs> who was booing out there? They're all Sydney Swans up here, are they? Okay, that's fair enough. Maybe keep your booing down. We like a bit more cheering, but I appreciate what you're doing. For those that listen to the podcast a lot, they know that I have two kids that love to ask questions on the show yes. and I'm touched that you listen to the podcast. Normally they come at the end, but uh, first up you're going to get my son, the seven-year-old who operates by the name of the Big Penguin. Now he said to me, which flattened me a little bit, Dad, you better put my... At first they're excited because they're going to be video for the first time questions rather yeah. than just audio questions, which they were very excited about. But he said to me, Dad, can you put mine at the start? And I was like, why is that? He said, because if people are bored, they might leave <laughs> before I get a run. So I said, okay, mate. Okay, not showing a great deal of faith in you or me, yeah. Sammy. But this is the first question. It doesn't come from me. It comes from the seven-year-old, the big penguin. He's bought us five minutes. Yeah, he has. Hi, Sam, big penguin here. When I was turning six, I got the biggest surprise of my life. I was going to the toilet and I saw a gear bike behind the back of my mum and dad's bed. I was so happy. How old were you when you got your first bike? And what type of bike was it? Yeah, nice by the penguin. Nice by the penguin. <laughs> so what was it, mate? Was it Christmas for you or when did you get a first bike? The first bike I remember having was a little 12-inch. Um, and I think we were just, we just were given bikes as kids, you know. Every kid had a bike growing mm. up and um, we were fortunate enough to have them. And, but the first one I remember going to get, we were probably... I think I was probably five, and it was um, there was a guy in Old Ranella in Adelaide, and he used to sell bikes out of his back garage, second-hand ones, and I bought this little six-inch bike for eight dollars, sixteen-inch, <laughs> sorry, for eight dollars, and um, we used to, you know, put bigger handlebars on it and do all sorts of stuff to it, and that was like our little fun bike, you know, that we'd just ride around everywhere and thrash, and yeah. And when did you first race? Can you remember your first competitive BMX race? <laughs> so funny story. I, I tell people I started Sammy, racing. Sammy, we'll be the judge of whether it's a funny okay. story. You tell the story <laughs> and we'll figure out if it's funny or not. I tell people I started racing when I was six. Right. But I actually started when I was three. Three? And, well, it was a short career. <laughs> um, so I did one race at Hallet Cove. Went well. Won the first round. First, first heat. As a three-year-old. As a three-year-old. Second heat was in second down the back straight, pulled off, threw the bike, and uh, just spat the chewy. Because so, you weren't leading? Yes. Oh, so, right. Um, so mum quickly, you know, put a halt to that and said, we're done. Um, you're going to go play a team sport. You can keep playing footy. You need to, need to learn to lose. And uh, we'll see if we pick this up again later on. So when did you come back into it? So when I was six... Um, God, there was a letter. Oh, you're a veteran then? Yeah, veteran. So um, already retired and... <laughs> come back come again. Back, yeah. The first come back. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when I was six at Hallett Cove Primary, there was a letter in the school bulletin one morning, uh, come and try BMX racing on Friday night at Happy Valley. And the first career, well, we were racing Sundays at Hallett Cove and that didn't really suit mum and dad because Sunday was, you know, the footy was on and mm. that was their day before Monday back at work. And so Friday came around, Friday night was... Perfect, you know, we could get over there, seven o'clock start. And so um, Matt and I, my brother, elder brother, we went over there and had a go at it. And that was 97 and um, raced ever since. And were you one of those kids immediately that you took to the sport that was a gun? Were you like the other kids like, oh, we're racing Sam Willoughby today or did it gradually come? No time for modesty now. <laughs> um, I did have quite a bit of success early, I'd say, within the state, like at a state level. I was successful, but... Uh, once we got into the sort of 
I'd say 12 and into the teen years, um, I struggled a bit because I was small. I just didn't grow, you know, compared to some of the other kids that shot up. Um, so, yeah, I struggled. I wouldn't say I struggled, but I was sort of mid, mid-packed, uh, yeah. But in the state, I was, yeah. I mean, I think I won every state title up and until I left. So. Okay. So, yeah, I was always around the mark. So yeah. you was going, okay, then I think it was obvious you go, okay, we've got a bit of vision here um, of an early race from you. We need to have a bit of a look and a listen to this. So what's this, the 15th of April 2001. You need to listen to the commentary here because it's outstanding. So where's this? So this is Happy Valley in South Australia. That was the local track that we started at. And how old would um, you be here? So I was nine going on ten. Right. And, and already got the nickname Slamming Sam. Slamming Sam, yep. Because I, I just wanted to jump everything and I would come, I'd case all the jumps. So I was always slamming the bike around. And We need to listen here because I reckon this has <laughs> got to be your old man. Slamming Sam's got the job done. Is that your old man, Colin? Is that him? Yeah. Is yep. that him on the... That's Colin, yeah. So. so I'm sure, and it's great to have some kids here tonight for the first live Howie Games. Were your mum and dad driving you around to racetrack after racetrack after racetrack? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know how many Ks they clocked up over the years, but, um, yeah, I definitely don't have a story of a, you know, a bad home life or unsupportive parents. I mean, they just back to me 100% on, and my brother on whatever we wanted to do as long as we put everything into it and um, we're good sports and um, went about it the right way. And um, mum took to coaching pretty, pretty young. She sort of seen that Matt and I were pretty competitive and wanted to take it a bit further than just doing it as a hobby. And so she sorted out all these, you know, some of the highest level coaches, some of the guys like Grant White, for example, he was the British Olympic coach, he was Australian, but went over to England to work, and she was talking to him back then. And your um, mum was, yeah, what a champion. <laughs> and just, you know, just finding out what do we need to do. You know, the kids want to train, and I don't know what to tell them to do. And so, um, funny story leading up to that national title in 2001, mum put together a training program, and it was like 12 weeks long for Matt and I, and because we were just hell bent on winning the national titles at Happy Valley. So she put together this training program. I was on the fridge. It's 12 weeks, and you know we had to tick the box every day and, um, and do the work kind of thing. And uh, it's funny you seeing that video at the end there where Dad's yelling out of the commentary tower, and I jumped that last straight. And and I was hell bent on jumping that last straight because I was the only kid in my age group that could do it. Uh-huh. And Mum was like, "No, we need to have another option. You know, it could rain, and like you got to learn to pump it as well." And I spat the dummy, so, you know, like, like I was slamming Sam. Like, <laughs> you want to just so, yeah, ease your back a bit. Slamming Sam, don't not jump. So, so there wasn't a great deal of. It's not like you could watch BMX racing on the telly. Yeah, you used to watch DVDs of what happened in America, and then as a young bloke, how old were you when you said, right, this is what I want to do? Yeah, I think they were videos, even videos, videos. and magazines. You um, old bugger. And <laughs> um, I was probably, I think I was around six or eight, probably eight, uh, one Wednesday night out at Cross Keys in South Australia, I was flicking through a magazine that we'd bought at the bike shop at the track and there were pictures of, you know, these guys in America racing and it just looked bigger and, and better, you know, <laughs> the, the, race, the tracks were indoors and the uniforms were more colourful and um, 
and a couple of the guys in the magazine, one of them was Wade Boots, who ended up being my coach. Um, and he was over there. This would have been early 2000s and riding for Trek, and he was the national number one pro over there at the time. And just seeing that an Australian was in America doing it and you know, reading about mm. this is their career and blah, blah, blah. And I said to mum that night, like, I'm going to go to America and, and I'm not going to need the job. And I don't need school. I don't <laughs> know. I, so. Don't listen to that, any of the kids that are here tonight. So that, that was it. That's that was what I'm going to do. That's what I wanted to do. And um, that was my dream from at six, eight years old was to go to America. You know, Olympics were never really on the radar. It was, it was always about going to America and trying to... And that's what you did. ...make it a profession. And that, yeah, at 17... At I, 17? Yeah. So you just got on a plane with your bike? <laughs> um, like, what type of financial backing did you have behind you at that stage? Yeah, so mum and dad basically said, well, you save up... And after, after, when I was 17, I'd won the junior world title in China. Um, as a seven, so 17, 18 is junior elite, and I won the world title as a junior. And um, so after that, I said, I want to go to America, and I want to chase this dream. And they said, we'll save up enough money. If you can get a plane ticket, you know, you can go. So I saved up 3,000 bucks. Um, just went, Dad was a builder, so he lined up some subby work with, like, <laughs> some chip rockers and bricklayers, and I went out in the school holidays and <laughs> saved up some pocket money. And so I got 3,000 bucks, found a China Airways ticket, to America for 1500 So that was the cheapest option. That was the cheapest option. So I went to Taipei, went Adelaide, <laughs> Sydney, Taipei, Taipei, LA, with like 12 hours in Taipei, and um, got myself over there. And right. So where'd you live? So when I landed there, I, it was, I mean, the world was becoming smaller at that point with, you know, MySpace and email and whatever else. So MySpace? I, <laughs> wow. So I, I had some communication with some American writers over there and um, I'd already met Elise at this point and um, just teed up to kind of stay on people's couches and travel around. So when I first got there, I stayed uh, with a fellow racer in Phelan, California, which is like... It's the asshole of the world. Right. And, um, it's, yeah, I stayed there with his family in the desert and, uh, and then just kept tracking around and somehow Elise convinced her mum and dad that there was an Australian 17-year-old boy that was coming to train with her. Right. So, Would it be fair to say at that point, because I love a good <laughs> romance story, how much of you would be declared a stalker of Elise at that point? Yeah, I mean... Got the job done in the right, end. Right, I did. But, <laughs> but so she, she, was, she was a young star coming up. Yeah, she was... Um, and you were checking her out on MySpace. She was America's BMX sweetheart. Right. You know, winning everything and yeah. on all the DVDs and, um, you know, the next big thing coming up in America. And, uh, yeah, so I just flicked her a message on MySpace, you know. Mm -hmm. What'd you go with? <laughs> just, I think it was something along the lines of there was a race coming up in Adelaide, a World Cup. And I knew she was coming over for it, and it was something along the lines of like that I just got my license, and like she wanted to go for a drive or something. And <laughs> you're better than that, Sam. <laughs> it didn't work. Right. I didn't get a reply. It's smooth. I like yeah. that from the crowd. Yeah. Didn't yeah. get a reply. No. But so you ended up staying with Elise and her family. Yep. She yep. was still at school. She was still at high school. Yeah. So her dad, Mark, who's here tonight, he'd go off to work. Um, Cheryl. Elisa's mum would be home all day and um, I would hang out with Cheryl and she'd, you know, we, <laughs> we'd just talk and <laughs> she'd take me to the gym <laughs> and then I'd take her to lunch and then 
Elise would come home from school. Right. At about nine o'clock at night, probably. Right. <laughs> and so at this stage is achieving... Is it possible in your mind, like, you know, you're moving around, you're living on people's couches, you don't have much money, to achieve the ultimate? Are you anywhere near where you need to be at this stage or is it a pipe dream? Um, no, by... So I went over in September and I won my first race in November. So my rise to the top was pretty quick, I'd say. Um, <laughs> not, <laughs> not that I was at the top after winning one race, but, mm. you know, I sort of put my name out there by doing that and... It just never seemed, I'd say it felt more impossible when I was here than when I got there and seen it all. And when I got there and seen it all, um, not to sound arrogant, but I was just kind of like, I'm, I'm better prepared than a lot of these guys because of the upbringing I'd had and the stuff mum put in place, like the level that I was training at and my approach to the sport and my thoroughness, I was just... I felt like I was, it was possible, you know, and it, there was tough times where, um, I mean, the guys I was racing against were mid to late 20s and they were supporting families and so there was a lot more on the line for them than, you know, 17-year-old kid just coming yeah. over and having a go. But I was fortunate in the respect that, yes, I went there with 3,000 bu bucks in my pocket, but, you know, mum and dad, you know, I was never going to be on the streets of California, you know, it... I just didn't see it as a risk, you know? It was like, go over there, have a go at it. If it doesn't work out, I'll come home and, and do the Was there next. a point when it was more difficult and you thought coming home be the easier option or did you just always just gradually grind um, it out? Yeah, there were points where I, I got pretty worked up, like probably in 2009. So I went to the, I won that race pretty quick and then come back the next year and I thought, all right, you know, I'm going to go for the title. Like, <laughs> I'm ready to go. And, and I struggled a lot more the next year because... It's one thing to win one race and it's easy to get to the top, but staying there is, is hard. And um, I'd say I struggled that year and just, um, yeah, just struggled with coming to terms, I'd say, with just competing against those guys and it not coming easy all the time and, um, and finding my way. I wasn't in the best situation. You know, they had a good home life and that kind of thing and I was tripping around and didn't have a car, didn't have a steady, you know, home life and all that stuff. So it was, a, it was a struggle in that respect early on, but it never seemed impossible, no. It didn't become impossible because you won a world title. And for the first time I want to show, and for people listening to the podcast, actually hear how intense it is, because I didn't know a great deal about the sport until we had a chat a couple of weeks ago yeah. and I did a bit of research on it. So this is Sam winning a world title. I just want you to watch and listen to how quickly it takes for the race from where to go. Yeah. Let's see from the start. Oh, it's a great start from Strombergs and also from Willoughby. It's Willoughby from Strombergs and then comes Dodde. It's Sam Willoughby though, leading. He's got two by his lead. Dowdy's kind of come up. Willis in third, but it's still Willoughby. Dowdy is tracking him down. Willoughby holding on and here comes Willis of New Zealand. Oh, Willis slams out and takes everyone out of Willoughby. is the world champion. Dowdy takes... Outstanding. Great commentary too by old mate who sort of lost his voice a bit. Where are they? As you cross the line. So what are you thinking at this stage? You've become a world champion. You've left home as a 17-year-old. Look at the grin on your face now. Yeah. This is obviously a real big moment. Yeah, huge. Um, that was the dream. I don't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
And it's, yeah, it's one of those things with any of my achievements now. I don't, I don't have much memory of the race. I don't have much memory of... They're always the best ones when you're just in the moment. And, but my fondest memories are always just the journey leading up to those events and the things you went through. And there's always a little story of you know, every success or every failure in the lead-up and the days before, the months before, the weeks before. Um, but the actual 30 seconds where it's all decided... I don't remember much of it. It was all instinctual. When it came into the Olympics in Beijing, it was like, oh, BMX riding. And I remember seeing the first race and it was like, this is captivating. Yep. It's short, it's sharp, it's athletic. There's blokes spilling, there's crashes, there's yep. action, there's excitement. So technically, what separates you from the field? Like, What's the key athletically to being a successful BMX racer? It's, I think it's... Physical is the big, you know, a lot of people say it's mental and, yeah, sport is mental at the top, but at the end of the day, if you, if you don't have the engine to get to the front, then it's, you know, you can be as cool, calm and collected as you want, but you've got to have that physicality and that's what I think people lose sight of when they see BMXs, you know, they just think, oh, it's just this crapshoot where you're just like action-packed 30 seconds, anyone can win, and it's like, no, there's a lot of technique there's a lot of you know physical phys physical as attributes that you have to have to um to be successful very similar to obviously we don't have lanes like a hundred meter sprinter mm. um but so similar in that in so many respects of you know the the physicality yeah. and what happens if there's a stack like we saw a stack there is there any redress like if someone takes you out in a in olympic event is there any redress or is it a bit of bad luck yeah it's pretty much i mean unless it's blatantly obvious where someone cuts the track and yeah, they don't call too much stuff because it's you don't have time to do a whole lot of damage out there. Where, and the things that you could do are so obvious that it just doesn't happen a lot, that someone would cut the track and T-bone someone else, you know. Um, you were talking about earlier on, I'm fascinated by this, about when you were talking about you wanted to cross the line in the air and you want to do a big jump. So when you're jumping, is the key to be in the air or is it to be on the ground? No, you want to get back to the ground as quick as possible. Yeah, it's to all get it speed. Going. And, and the only reason you're... I mean, the jumps are essentially in the way of you going fast. So the only reason you're jumping them is because you have to, to get over it, to get back going again. So whatever the quickest way is over it, that's, that's what we'll do. Crashing is obviously a big part of it, and we'll get to what happened to you a little bit later on. But again, we've got some vision. I think this is a world championship when they had time trials. If you could talk me through <laughs> what's happening here and how often crashes like this occur. This is um, Sam, I think. So it's a time trial. You might yeah, as well talk us through Manchester. It, so this track was not gelling with me all week and I was just having a terrible week on it. And I overshoot this one, so I land a little far and... I just get sucked at the front of my bike and I couldn't get my weight back quick sucked enough. Sucked all right. And then um, when I took off in the air like that, the, the best thing seemed to just get out of there. So how often does that happen? In, in how, how often do you crash? Uh, pretty often, yeah. And, and, and do, you, do, you, do you know it's coming? Like, can you uh, prepare yeah, yeah. yourself? Like, I knew that was coming, so that's why I jumped off the bike like that. Because the next option was if I stay on the bike, I go forward and land on my head, which as we found out, it's yeah. not good. No, no. <laughs> so so it, does, it, does it zap your confidence? Like when this has been recorded, Steve Smith just got hit in the head. Yep. Um, it's going to be, how's he going to go back when he faces the short ball? Yep. How do you wipe it out of your mind, what's happened, or is it just part of it, on you go? 
It depends. It, it can, yeah. Um, for me, that was probably the best thing that could have happened to me that weekend because I was just struggling with the track so much and then it was like, all right, well, that's out of the way now and then just got back to racing and I think ended up coming second or third that weekend. So it was like, it's almost sometimes good to go through that, you know? It's like you got, you know, the first few minutes of a grand final, you see guys spray the ball out on the full and then yep. they win the Norm Smith medal. So it's like, you just kind of shake the nerves off. But then I've had ones where that do rattle you and it's hard to go back to that track or that jump and and do it again because maybe you, you felt like you did everything you could and you don't understand why the, the crash happened. But I had some big get-offs before a lot of big events. Um, Is that what you call them, get-offs? Yeah. <laughs> get-offs, I like that. Obviously that one and um, probably my biggest crash was um, it was probably a week before I won my second pro title in the US and if any crash should have taken me out, it should have been that one. I mean, there's no footage of it, but I just went, I went head, basically I stayed on the bike. So like that one looked, but I stayed on the bike. I went head first into another jump and completely shattered my helmet and just was in, was in a bad, should have been in a bad way. Um, got away with just a bruised knee and feeling a bit sore and went on to race and did well the next weekend. But, um, and then, yeah, obviously the accident that ended up getting me was the scratch on my helmet is a couple of inches, like nothing, yeah. We'll get to that. The Olympics, yep. as I said, it came in in Beijing. You would have been too young to compete in Beijing. Yeah. So London, mm -hmm. where you won an Olympic silver medal. Mm -hmm. What was, was the Olympic experience everything it was cracked up to be? Uh, it was a terrible week for me, actually. Um, I just, I really struggled with the, the moment of it a bit. and um, Mentally or yeah, physically? just... Uh, mentally, yeah. Um, I had a really good lead up to it. I went in as the world champion. And just on the the, the day before, I almost didn't even make it out of the heats. And um, got a good old footy speech from, from dad and my brother the night. <laughs> what, did they, what, what, did you, what did Big Cole <laughs> just, roll with? Big Cole just called up with all these like um, comparisons to footy and, <laughs> you know, running out on the field and, you know, spraying your first goal and all this right. stuff and, you know tomorrow's the second quarter and, <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah and I came back the next day and that was a little up and down still and managed to sort of scrape my way through to the final and um and put together a decent lap but it wasn't I didn't feel like my best effort but good enough to get a silver medal and um so how do you I learned away? a ton I mean I was so I was 20 years old yeah and um I went into it, my first Olympic Games self-coached at that point I was doing all my own training. Um, I went and lived in an apartment under the Storybridge Hotel in Brisbane by myself in the lead up just because I couldn't ride the tracks at, by my house in America because they were blocked off for the Americans. And so I did a lot of it on my own. And I think just at the last sort of hurdle of it all, I just, it just got to me a bit, the, the, the moment of it. How and, do you mean? Um, um, I think just, just being there and um, realizing that it's, you know, this, this day is here and, um, it's, you know, test day. Like today is, um, at that point at 20 years old, I felt like a gold medal defined my life. And, um, and I rode like, like that. Yeah. So do you look back on that now? Like actually at the time when you walked away from London with a silver medal in your mind, success or failure? Uh, success. Yeah. Yeah. I think initially when I came across the finish line, I'd say I felt failure cause it was just like, I got second. Um, but then you realise the moment of it, you stand up there on the, 
on the podium and you know in your Australian tracksuit and um, go back to the village and you know all the encouragement and um, probably one of the most memorable things from the London Olympics was when I came into my room I had three rubbish bags full of mail from kids and um, just the impact that you know these kids were given an opportunity through all the primary schools in Australia to write letters through Australia Post and um, and I had tons of them and that was that hit me like in a way that made me realize oh, this is big like this is a big moment there's a lot of people watching this and um, but it was special because it just felt like it was not that long ago that I would have written one of those letters you know and um, and you realize the impact that that you're having on on people and more importantly on on kids so what's it like to be a hero to kids <laughs> I don't know if I consider myself a hero but what, but the kids um, consider you a hero yeah like they're writing it's, your letters because they're looking at you at the Olympics thinking, yeah. wow, he's done that. Maybe I could do that. Like that's the definition of a hero when yeah. you're a kid. It's a tough one. I still, it just humbles me, I think. I still struggle with it even today. Like when kids come up and um, they, and I get letters now from kids that, you know, either race or in similar positions to me of my injury. And, and um, it's, I just try to be me to them. And I think that's, you know, in a, in a world that's gone pretty... <laughs> you know, fake and 15 minutes of fame at, 15 seconds of fame at times. Um, I've always just tried to be real and, you know, ask about their day and um, talk to them about them as well and not just, I've just never seen myself as a superstar or a celebrity really. I didn't ever like that side of it. Um, So, yeah, I just like human connection more so. Told you he's a cracker, didn't I? I told you. I told you when he came out that you're going to fall for this fella. <laughs> Maybe not as hard as Elise did due to the MySpace operations, but uh, nevertheless. Back to the episode in a moment. Next up on the show, I'm still working on it, but if all things come to pass and the podcast gods shine down on us, it's going to be pretty epic. So keep an ear out for it. It will drop on Thursday, September the 26th. Alrighty, back to Slamming Sam. So, mate, you put together an amazing body of work um, and leading up to Rio, be fair to say a gold medal at Rio, people would have been calling you the GOAT, I guess. It was that, is that a fair description of the way it was being built up? I remember watching the Olympic coverage and the stories, right, if this bloke achieves what he hopes to achieve, then he's probably the best there's been. Yeah, that was pretty much all I heard for since London. Yep. Um, How'd that sit with you? It was hard. I don't yeah. Know, yeah, it just made it seem bigger than I wanted it to ever be. Um, Four years, a long time to hear that. Well, I mean, at 17, if you would have told me, you know, you're going to win three ABA titles, which is the American professional title, um, three world titles, uh, I would have signed me up, Hmm. I'm done there. And then after 2012, to have done all that and then have a silver medal in your pocket and then everyone's like, if you just do this, then it'll be complete, then you'll be great, then you'll be all this stuff. Um, yeah, I'd say that that was kind of hard to listen to at times, and I would say it put, it made me probably make the Olympics bigger than it ever really was to me, especially Rio. And the tough thing about Rio was I'd gone through my career injury-free, um, and then <laughs> March 2016, I tore my ACL. And um, so, yeah, it was just a lot of, 
And then when that happened, I was kind of like, all right, well, this surgery is going to have to happen at some point, probably post, obviously post Rio. Um, so that's going to put me out for a year. And then I was at a point where I was just a little bit burnt out, I'd say. Um, and so I really, I'd say I rushed it. Like I really just went into Rio and I put everything into it. And I went in in great shape. That was the best physical shape I'd ever been in. Well, talk, um, talk about the shape you're in. And this is where it hit me how physical you need to be to ride a BMX bike. Yeah. We're going to show some vision of you in the gym. We're going to listen to it as well because this <laughs> is your serious kilo as we're talking about now. Check this out. <laughs> Whoever said shit out there, spot on, spot on. <laughs> What's on that bar? Uh, about 250 kilo. Oh, so why do you need to be able to do that to ride a BMX bike? Because just strength is the foundation of everything. Speed, right. power, everything. So, so, you, so you're, that's 20-odd that's days before the Olympics? Yep, 20 days before, yep. Okay, so it comes to the Olympic final. There's eight in it. Yep. How'd it go? So the, the Olympic final, I nailed the start. Um, at that point, I'd won every lap over the course of two days. Um, I had the fastest lap time going into the final. Uh, lane one, everything was in place. Uh, I'd say mentally I was in a good spot. Um, I'd learnt so much from London and I'd worked with the same sports psychologist since I was 14 and he went through London with me and continued work. And we just had strategies for everything I felt and I felt pretty bulletproof and went up to the gate in that final and um, hit all my marks right off the start hit the first jump pretty much in the lead if not equal and just made the slightest mistake of just leaving my back wheel down a little bit too long on the first jump and lost all my speed and um yeah from there just dropped back came out of the first turn in third and just rode cautious after that I you know there's a couple of things that in hindsight I maybe could have done but just for me at that point I think I was just like a deer in the headlights after that first like the day had just gone so perfect the week had gone perfect and um until that point in my career every time I'd executed like that every time I'd worked for something um every time I'd you know ticked all the boxes um I'd been successful and pretty much yeah for the first time it it didn't go to plan and um it was it was a weird feeling coming across the finish line in fifth or sixth or whatever I ended up um and just it was like that's it and I didn't it wasn't like throw your helmet or angry it was just like shock like that wasn't what I thought was going to happen and now what kind of um and that was sort of an eye-opener of like you know you're entitled to nothing basically and you know you put all the work in and you you have to know that that that's that's a possibility and to me that was at the time was like the biggest loss of my life the biggest loss of my career like what now and um I didn't really know where to go from there or how to deal with it and it was a it was a tough you know it was I was kind of at a crossroads because Elise had just got a silver medal 30 seconds before me so you don't really like I'm not gonna rain on her parade you know so you you go out that night and (laughs) let the let the beer cover up the emotions and um and then try to figure out what's next and I'd say where I went wrong after that was just like my mentality after that was just like I gotta go to the next race and win and I was just trying to cover up that loss with more wins and 
I didn't really take the time to let my body heal. I didn't take the time to let my mind heal. I didn't take, yeah, I was just like a runaway train at that point. So what happened? So three weeks after that is, um, yeah, when the accident happened. So within two weeks after the Olympic Games, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, doing a USA BMX race. And basically, because that was... Two weeks after the Games. Yeah. Because that was my mentality at that point was just like, how am I going to make up for this loss and just cover it up? And it was like, just win, like a gambler mentality kind of. But would winning have covered it no. up or not? In hindsight now, no. But mm. at the time, that was what I thought I needed to do. And that was the only way I felt I needed to deal with it. And, and I was stubborn, like no one could talk to me or like, you know, pull me back. Or um, The morning of my crash... One of my good friends who I went to the London Olympics with, Kalen Young, he was texting me and he was like, um, I'm worried about you. Like, um, I think you need to go get your knee fixed and just stop. Like, you've been going hard for 10 years. Like, just stop and it's fine. Like, you'll have another race. You'll get another crack at this. And, um, and I, was text- I was like, yeah, yeah no, yep, I'll get my knee fixed. Um, I- I'm just going to go through to mid middle of 2017 world championships are in America. I want to try to win that and then, then I'll get my knee fixed. And, and he's like, no, nah, you need to do it now. Like, just stop. Like, it's, it's done. Like, you can't make up for Rio. And, um, and I did some thinking about that. And 30 minutes later, I went to the track to just have a ride. And that was, yeah, when the accident happened. Before we talk about the accident... It's a really, really personal question now, but since what has happened has happened yep. and has put you in a wheelchair, obviously, yep. how often do you go back to that moment and that text message and that day and think, if only? And how difficult is that mentally? I did a few times in laying in bed yep. in the hospital, but never now, honestly, because whilst that attitude took me out, that attitude made me great as well. And so many times that... You know, if it wasn't for that stubbornness, if it wasn't for that, you know, bullet the gate mentality, if it wasn't for that um, hungry for the next thing, um, I wouldn't have made it, you know, as a 17-year-old in America. I wouldn't have, you know, won a world title at 20 years old. I wouldn't have, you know, done all the things I I did and and lived. You know, I essentially had to live as a 30-year-old at 17, um, you know, in a one-bedroom apartment in San Diego and... Um, and I chose to do that. You know, I wanted to do that, and no one, no one ever forced me to to do what I that I was doing what I wanted to do, and I was doing what I loved, and um, and that's why today I can still go to the track, and I still love watching racing. I still love being involved in it. And um, but on the flip side of that, if you could, you know, if I can wake up tomorrow and be quote unquote normal, I wouldn't race again because I'm I'm content and. Um, so, yeah, I, just, I don't have any regrets, really. I mean, that's not the way I wanted it to end, but I don't know. i got <laughs> so many other things to be thankful for, and I'm thankful that I have the mindset I have because of sport. You know, sport gave me the mindset to deal with this, the ultimate challenge. I mean, when you face life and death or you face losing everything and you can deal with that, then that's when you realize the value of that skill set, you know, it's great to win races, it's great to 
be considered successful at sport, but at the end of the day, the, the biggest challenge is this, you know, life and sport's given me the skill set to, to deal with it. Jeez, you're a strong man. You're a strong man to look at it like that. Um, so if you don't mind me asking, like what happened the morning, like what happened? Yeah, so when I got to the track, I was just doing a routine warm-up. Um, I used to go through the what's called the rhythm section, so a bunch of little jumps all in a row, and I'd go through it on my back wheel. And when I could go through the hole straight on my back wheel, that was like a signal to me that I was balanced and ready to train. Um, and I was coming around doing that. This is I'd ridden this track probably two, three times a week for the past six years. And um, I came in pretty fast and I just overcorrected and went too far off the back and what we call looped out where I went up into basically a backflip and I must have come straight down onto the top of my head and just crushed my um, cervical spine from C5 to 7. So I don't, I've never seen footage of it, only like one or two people seen it. Um, and then you look at the helmet that I crashed in and there's a few paint chips off of the, like the crown of my, or the top of my head. Um, but it must have just been such a direct, hard impact that it, yeah, just crushed, crushed my spine and really a, a pretty freak accident, yeah. Did you retain consciousness or not? Yep, 100% conscious the whole time. So we got some audio here of the 911 call. Are you happy if we play that? Yeah. Okay, this is the, the 911 call when Sam was injured. 911, dispatcher 933, what's your emergency? Uh, emergency, um, I work at the Chilavista uh, Olympic Training Center, mm-hmm. and we run the BMX track. We had a rider crash, and he can't feel his leg. Okay, let me try to read genetics. Stay on the line. Okay. So you're, you're on the track. Mm-hmm. Who's there? Or what, what, what's happening? So there were some, like, track helpers, like, just dads at the track, and one happened to be an EMT, I found out later. Um, and they just came down, and the first person that seen me was actually a female rider who was sitting right by it. And I remember just looking at her and saying, I can't feel my legs, and it just felt like my legs were, like, way off in the distance. And then she just was, like, went like a ghost and then not too long later there was people coming down and a couple of just dads at the track and um they were just obviously trying to keep me as still as possible and um calming me down and um they were running through all these checks like he was trying to squeeze my toes and you know brushing up my legs and can you feel this no can you wiggle this no 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 um and then he sort of once the check came up to here he said, can you feel any of this? And I couldn't, it just felt like I had like a wetsuit on that was just full of water. Like it felt like my chest was out here. And so then they, he just kept running through all these checks. And at that point I had a little bit of hand function because they asked me to squeeze the hand, I squeezed his hand. And then he ran through the checks again and it came back to my arms and I couldn't squeeze his hand. And that's sort of when I really panicked, I'd say, of just, the thought of being motionless from the neck down. Yeah. And at that point, I mean, I was just stabilised. I mean, even if I wanted to try to move, I was, they weren't going to let me do anything, so thankfully. Um, and then eventually the ambulance arrived and put me on a backboard and 
strapped me pretty tight and um, they had the ambulance parked on the track, but they didn't want to... I remember them saying, like, we can't drive the ambulance out of here, we need a life flight because it was too bumpy and the risk of me moving um, was too high, like, of anything moving in my neck. So the helicopter arrived um, not too long after. I was shoved into the back of that and flown to hospital. That's the end of episode 76, part A, but there's plenty more to come in part B with Sam and Elise. See you there. Listener.